welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Hey, welcome along. So thrilled you're with us this evening. Um, Last Sunday night, I began a series that I've just called The Challenges or The Challenge Of and then have left kind of dot, dot, dot. And uh, we are going to fill in the gap, okay? So last week, I talked about the challenge of atheism. And what I'm hoping to do in this series is really just uh, listen to some voices that are speaking to the church, sometimes, uh, you know, with a good deal of um, animosity, um, and try and hear what they're saying and perhaps answer back, not smartly or arrogantly, but give biblical shape to some of the questions that they are asking. So we, as I say, looked at atheism last week. Uh, tonight I want to take on the challenge of uh, feminism. <laughs> Some people have said to me this week, oh man, you're brave. Um, in Nepal, uh, the Gurkhas who are famed for their bravery say there is a very fine line between bravery and stupidity. And uh, I'm not quite sure whether I've crossed it or not. Maybe the end of the series, we'll see. Um, The immediate problem I have in this topic is that it seems to me that feminists don't necessarily speak with a united voice. Um, There are many who would identify as being feminist, but it seems to me at least that their voices sound very different. And by that I mean it seems that there is a spectrum from moderate to, to extreme. And as a result, it's kind of difficult to know where to pitch a talk when you're trying to answer some questions. Um, whose voice am, am I responding to? So what I decided to do was to pick uh, something that I thought would be a point of common agreement uh, of people that are on that spectrum. Now, some of them would speak more vehemently to it, but I think most people who are on the spectrum would actually have some questions uh, in, in this particular realm. And so what I hope to do is bring a biblical response um, to the question that I'm assuming. Now, as I say, it's an assumption on my part, but I suspect it's a reasonably accurate one. I think most people who would find themselves on that spectrum uh, of, of perhaps saying I lean toward a feminist view, they would struggle with what they see as an outdated misogynistic attitude toward women exhibited in at least some Bible passages, if not the whole Bible. So uh, I think many feminists would struggle with, with, with the Bible and what it seems to say about women. For example, it seems to most people who read the Bible with uh, perhaps a feminist lens that the Bible seems to endorse a patriarchal form of family, government, society. Um, They would say it teaches reasonably plainly male headship or male leadership in which more often than not women are reduced to roles of followers and should be in submission to men. There are passages in the New Testament which speak of women being quiet in public meetings and there are also passages that say that women are forbidden to teach men. So, um, ipso facto, QED, what else do you need? The Bible is misogynistic, it's patriarchal, it's totally out of touch with modern sensibilities. Quite frankly, if you're a believer and uh, a a postmodern person, there are parts of the Bible that are really embarrassing. 
Now, I want to say right off the bat that there really are some hard passages that as Bible students we have to come to grips with and we have to face the claims that are being directed toward us and engage with these incredibly difficult passages. However, what I'm going to suggest to you tonight is that as you do engage with those passages and as you engage with the Bible as a whole, a picture emerges that is quite different from the one we have often been led to believe is true. Now, I've actually dealt with this subject in detail in the past. Um, it was a number of years ago, so maybe I should do it again sometime, but um, we don't have the time, and I suspect you don't have the inclination to, to sit there for a number of hours while we go through all of the hard passages. So uh, I'm not going to even try and untangle some of the hard passages. I will say, however, they can be untangled, all right, and, and they do need to be. What I want to do is to tackle more generally the way we read the Bible, um, so what, what we're actually going to try and do tonight is kind of look at a bird's eye view rather than dive into some of these hard passages and, tie, and try and untangle them. The difficulty we face when we come to the Bible is that many, many Christians and, and, of course, outsiders come to the text as if it is static written in stone. So in other words, they say, that's what the Bible says. And you've probably, if you've been around Christian circles, heard somebody say, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. So if the Bible says women should be silent in the church because the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. If the Bible says a man is the boss in the family, the Bible says it, that settles it, um, I believe it, that settles it. Now, what that approach fails to, to come to terms with is that while the scriptures are written for us, they are not written to us. You say, well, Don, what do you mean by that? That's a bit confusing. Well, listen, when God gave the scriptures, he speaks or he spoke into a specific cultural setting at specific times in history. And his communication with those people and those times and those cultures acknowledges that the word is coming into something that is already established in terms of cultural patterns. And the Bible comes to them where they presently are. Otherwise, they'd never be able to relate to it. So the Bible is spoken into cultural and historical settings, speaking to a people's culture where they presently are, rather than presenting them with an ultimate ethic, with an ideal that they would not be able to relate to. So let me try and unpack this a bit for you. In the Old Testament times and settings, we call it the ancient Near East, society was, in fact, largely structured along patriarchal lines, male headship. It was a male-dominated society. And in his communication with these people, God assumes that. And his communication with them assumes that. But that is not the same thing as advocating it. One of our tasks as we come to the hermeneutical process, as we come to interpreting the scripture, is to discern the difference between what we understand to be descriptive and what we understand to be pre prescriptive. 
Now, the difference is descriptive just describes what is. Prescriptive says what ought to be. And one of the tasks as a Bible student is to understand, is this passage descriptive or is there something universally prescriptive about it that's supposed to be for all people in all cultures at all times? And much of what the Old Testament records is what is rather than what ought to be. In many, in many respects, those descriptive passages are what one scholar calls a true record of false ideas, okay? So that is what is, and it describes it in terms of what is, but it isn't advocating what ought to be. When you come to the scriptures, you have to see that in many instances, there is what we call a redemptive movement of text. Now, by that I mean that this thing develops. It changes over time. It is not static, written in stone. L let me try and illustrate what I mean. Let's take the, uh, the example of violence and revenge. So in the beginning, God's word comes to a specific cultural setting where violence and revenge reign unfettered by any laws or any agreed norms. The culture of that time was lawless and incredibly violent. If somebody hurt your family, you wiped out their village. If somebody attacked your village, you attacked their tribe. And, and you see it in uh, Genesis chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, where it says, One day Lamech said to Adah and Zilah, Listen to me, my wives, I have killed a youth who attacked and wounded me. If anyone who kills Cain will be punished seven times, anyone taking revenge against me for killing that youth should be punished 77 times. So he's saying, you, you knock out my tooth, I will cut off your head. And that's the way life worked in that setting. If anybody attacked you, you attacked them back harder and stronger. Now, God's word comes into that setting, that time and that people. Listen, Leviticus 24. The penalty for injuring someone is to be injured in exactly the same way. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever anyone does to another shall be done to him. Now question. Is that an improvement on what they have been experiencing up to this point in time? For that culture and that time, the answer has to be a resounding yes. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth isn't God saying, if someone knocks your tooth out, knock their tooth out. God is speaking into a culture which is, in which revenge is unfettered and unrestrained, and he's saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. If somebody knocks out your tooth, you can't go beyond knocking out theirs. That's a restraint being put on them. It moves culture from absolute chaos to at least a greater degree of order. Another question, is that God's ultimate? Is that a stuck-in-time static text so that when you read that in Leviticus, you have, um, you have an occasion for or permission for revenge? Somebody gets me, I'll get them back. The Bible says it, eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Well, clearly not. Clearly not. There is a redemptive movement in this idea of how we treat people who have mistreated us. 
That is obviously not the ultimate intention. It's not static, stuck in time text. As you follow through this idea of violence and revenge, God moves the idea redemptively forward. So Jesus says in Matthew chapter five, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now he's picking up that text and he's moving it redemptively forward. And he says, but I tell you, Don't resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other cheek to him also. He references the old understanding and redemptively moves it forward. Paul does the same. Repay no one evil for evil. Dear friends, never avenge yourselves. Leave that to God. So he's saying, listen, the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth stuff really needed to be said to that culture, but we've moved somewhat. And we need to move toward an ultimate ethic. If you look at the text, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, from our place in history, it looks regressive. It looks completely completely out of touch with modern sensibilities. But it didn't for the people to whom the word came. For them, it was progressive. It just wasn't the ultimate. It had redemptive movement in it, and to assume that it's an ultimate prescription of God's intent is to miss where God actually is taking this thing. Let me try and diagrammatically represent it to you, okay? So X is the original culture, violent, unrestrained revenge. Y is the biblical word that comes into that culture. Now, from the original culture, as they look upon that word, it's incredibly redemptive. It actually brings order into their chaos. When you move to our culture and you look back on it, you think, Flip, how regressive is that? What's God doing? He's saying revenge, revenge. Take their tooth if they take yours. But that misses the movement and it's moving to Z, an ultimate ethic. There's redemptive movement in the idea. Using that diagram, let me, let me give you another illustration of an issue that over centuries has been an area of phenomenal controversy. It's the issue of slavery. You know, some people read the Old Testament on slavery and they are horrified. The Bible endorses slavery. What kind of book is this, we say? Well, there are some people, as you know, that have actually tried to use the scriptures to justify slavery and saying, the Bible says it, God endorses it. But the original culture, the X, if you like, into which the word comes, was a, was a cultural a setting in which slavery was accepted without question. Slaves weren't even considered to be human, and they were subject to terrible abuse. Into that situation comes the word, why? It's the Bible's restraint on the situation, and it represents a marked improvement on what was going on in the culture. There was still slavery, but it's now slavery with much better conditions and the recognition that these are human beings made in the image of God and they cannot simply be treated as property. I suspect that slaves in the ancient Near East were all seeking to escape and to go to Israel because of the progressive ideas that they had about how slavery should be, how slaves should be treated. Now, from our point of view, our culture, where we stand, we look back and see the words in the Old Testament about slavery as incredibly regressive. We are shocked. 
that the Bible doesn't condemn slavery outright. But listen, if the ultimate ethic had been presented to this people, it would never have gained traction. The idea that slavery was wrong would never have uh, carried any weight with this. They, they, they would never have understood it. The idea would have been preposterous and would have been rejected outright. God deals with us where we are, and he takes us from where we are to the ultimate ethic. He doesn't slap the ultimate ethic right on you. It would crush you. When you got saved, when you came to Christ, if God in that moment had told you what he wanted from you, you'd be crushed. Gently, kindly, he leads you. There's a redemptive movement, not only in text, but in life. Listen, it's clear that there's a redemptive movement on this subject because Paul outlines the ethic in Galatians 3.28 when he says, we are no longer Jews or Greeks or slaves or free men or even merely men or women, but we are all the same. We are Christians. We are one in Jesus. In Paul's time, revolutionary. See, the Roman culture was built on the back of slavery and to suggest that slaves are our brothers and therefore should be treated fairly and humanely, could have brought the wrath of Rome down on the heads of this young Christian community. It's the reason Paul is measured in some of his comments on this issue. He doesn't come right out and condemn slavery. He couldn't without endangering the Christian community. But he most certainly laid the platform for it to be totally undermined in the future. And of course, I'm sure most of you are aware that it was a group of Christ followers led by William Wilberforce who took up the redemptive movement intended in these texts and were responsible for having slavery outlawed in Britain and its territories. So there is redemptive movement. All that to say, it's the same with women. It is exactly the same when you deal with the issue of women in scriptures. In the scriptures. I don't know how many times over the years people have come to me and have been deeply troubled by what they see in the Old Testament, particularly, but some passages in the New Testament as well, on the subject of women. So let's return to our diagram. X resembles the culture into which the word came, the place of woman in the ancient Near East. And I'm sorry, but they were regarded as little more than chattels, they were the possession of men on the same level as slaves. If you go into that culture and read about it, you'll find that to have an affair with a married woman, you, you never ever spoke about the emotional damage that you may have done to her or even to her husband. They talked in property terms. You have violated his property rights. That was the culture into which the word comes. So the Bible's word goes into an existing culture and brings a moderating influence to that pattern. You couldn't divorce your wife, for example, without a bill of rights that was designed to protect her. She wasn't property to be disposed of by either husband or father. And I suspect all the women of that time would have been wishing that they'd been born as Israelites. It was revolutionary. It was incredibly progressive. Now, from where we stand, looking back, people read it and say, this is disastrous. This is so regressive. But we say that because we just we treat the words as static, stuck-in-time text, and we don't see the redemptive intent of God on the subject. If you want to look at the subject, you need to do so in terms other than stuck-in-time text. You have to understand redemptive 
progress. And I I suggest before you go to the New Testament and jump into the difficult passages, and there are a handful, before you do that, look at Jesus. It strikes me as really strange that when this subject comes up in Christian circles, people ignore Jesus as if he had nothing to say about the subject, and they go straight to Paul and, and complain about the hard texts. But Friends, Jesus represents a high watermark in terms of the treatment of women. Now, we don't have time to pursue this in detail, but the reality is he shocked the people of his day because of the way that he related to and treated women. There are at least 40 references in the Gospels to Jesus' interaction with women, and in that culture, that is absolutely stunning. He consistently revealed attitudes and exhibited behavior that showed that he considered women to be of equal standing to men. He created a community of equals. He valued the spirituality of women in a time when nobody else did. A rabbi from the time wrote, rather should the words of the Torah be burned than entrusted to a woman. That was the general approach of men to woman at that time. Compare that with Jesus, who not only had woman in his entourage, but praises Mary for sitting at his feet and listening to the word, and of her he says, she has chosen the better part. He had woman disciples. That was scandalous beyond measure. He used women as examples of ideal spiritual conduct. For example, the widow's might, Mary of Bethany anointing his feet. He often started a parable, for example, in Luke chapter 15. A woman lost a coin. Most of the men in that audience wouldn't have heard the parable from that moment on. What are you talking about, a woman? And that would have, been, it would have been over their head. That was scandalous in that culture. Jesus is using women as examples of deeply spiritual behavior. At every turn, he moderates or transcends patriarchy. Well, I've had people say to me, and they've come up after I've talked like this and said, okay, Don, but he chose 12 disciples and they were all male. So surely that indicates that he believed in male headship and it should be the same in the church. Well, I'm sorry, but I think the reason that he chose 12 men was primarily a cultural issue for that time, rather than some universal restriction on women. At that time, women were not regarded as valid witnesses. The proclamation of truth by witnesses, at least in that time, that place, that culture, had to be done by men. We, we do exactly the same kind of thing today in cross-cultural mission situations where we send people into very difficult circumstances and we tell them they need to endure some things. For example, some of the women might need to wear burqas in a particular culture, not because it's required biblically, but if you don't do that, your credibility will be so low nobody will ever hear what you're going to say. So we modify in order to be able to be credible. And I think that's exactly what was happening here. The people, by the way, who used the fact that the 12 were all male to argue for universal male leadership tend to use that idea selectively. They tend not to say, well, not only were they male, but they were also entirely Jewish. So what does that mean? That leadership in the church not only should be male, but should be entirely Jewish as well. I mean, it's a very selective use of the text. They use maleness to argue for male leadership over female leadership, but never 
at least in my experience, argue for exclusively Jewish leadership over Gentile leadership. Perhaps we should demand some consistency here. Now, while Jesus' attitude to women is very positive and very affirming, some people suggest that Paul was a retreat from that high water mark that Jesus established. And he's pictured and presented by some as being something of a misogynistic bully. However, I'd, I'd like to challenge that. It's clearly not so. Paul's thoughts on the, matters, on the matter isn't hard to discern. And you go back to that classic passage in Galatians 3 again where it says, in Christ's family there can be no division into Jew and non-Jew, slave and free, male and female. Amongst us, you are all equal. Now, this is from a man who would have at one portion or one time in his life prayed a prayer on a daily basis that all Jewish men prayed. And they prayed, I thank God I was not born a Gentile, I was not born a slave, or a, and I was not born a woman. He has done a revolutionary turnabout. And in that one statement in Galatians, Paul renders the great divides of the ancient world null and void, the racial divide, neither Jew nor Gentile, the class divide, neither slave nor free, the gender divide, neither men nor women, a radical egalitarianism, a radical departure from first century thought and practice. There's redemptive movement in the text, and you have to see that on this subject. You say to me, Don, well, what about those other places where he places some severe restrictions on women? You know, be silent, don't teach, be in submission. Listen, the submission one, by the way, um, largely comes from Ephesians where it says, submit yourselves one to another, woman or, or wives, submit yourselves to your husband. Listen, as you look at that Greek, what that's saying is each one of us should be in mutual submission. As an example of that, wives, you be submitted to your husband. He could have just as easily said, and men, you submit yourself to your wives. That's the thrust of the whole Greek language there. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is radical, where he says to the, to the men in a marital relationship. He's talking about sexual relationship and he says, woman, your body is not your own, it belongs to your husband. Well, in a patriarchal society, that's not news. But then he goes on and says, and man, your body is not your own, it belongs to your wife. Holy cows. You know, that, that is revolutionary. And he's talking about mutual submission. There are difficult passages, but as you unpack them, they are not as hard as you think. And there is a principle in Bible interpretation that says you always look at the hard passages through the lens of the clear ones and not vice versa. A Bible scholar of no less renown than F.F. Bruce states, this is the basic principle. Any restrictive passage must be understood in the light of Galatians 3.28 and not vice versa. So when you go to passages where it says, woman, be silent. You've got to see that through Galatians 3.28 and not try and turn it around. There were reasons for that in the local cultural setting, which if you delve into, are understandable. He's trying to bring order with his incredible chaos and disorder into cultures where there's all sorts of stuff going on. He's not being prescriptive. He's not saying, in all places, at all times, this should be the case. As, as wonderful a scholar as G. Campbell Morgan says of those passages, 
Corinthian conditions are clearly in view. He's not saying this is the way it is. Rather than immerse yourself in the really hard passages, try and get an overall picture, for example, of the roles played by women in the early Pauline communities. And since this matter has been a subject of extensive research and scholarship over recent years, we have a really good picture. And it is beyond doubt that women played public and significant roles in the ministry of those communities. They were leaders. You see that in Philippians chapter 4, verse 2. They were deacons, Romans chapter 16, verse 1. They were teachers, Romans 16, verse 3. They, they were apostles, the woman junior in Romans chapter 16, verse 7. They were elders. They filled every kind of public role. Now, to suggest then from other passages, which are very difficult to interpret, that Paul was against women in ministry doesn't equate or equal his clear practice. If Paul intended these hard passages to be prescriptive, then he certainly didn't follow his own teachings. He was either a hypocrite or these passages have something to say in that setting that they don't have in other settings. And I'm suggesting that. You know, through the history of the church, women have pray, played roles of equal and in some cases much greater significance than men. They have been missionaries, preachers, teachers, prophets, apostles. And while some of you may want to take issue with me on this, and I'm not suggesting that the church has had a stellar record on the matter, because I think in many instances the, churches have, the church over the years has fallen from the high watermark of the New Testament church, of Jesus and Paul. And so we haven't got a stellar record. But the truth is, wherever the gospel has gone and taken root, the dignity and role of woman has been enhanced rather than diminished. Yes, to our shame, there have been times, places, and individuals who have retreated from the high water mark of Jesus and Paul and have tried to take what I think are descriptive passages and sought to make them prescriptive. However, by and large, wherever Christianity has gone, it's been really good news for women. And should you be skeptical, let me ask you a question. Ladies, would you rather be a woman in the Western world shaped as it is by its Judeo-Christian roots or would you rather be a woman living under Islam in Afghanistan or Riyadh in Saudi Arabia? Or perhaps under Hinduism where before the influence of Christianity outlawed this, widows were burned alive with their dead husbands. Wherever Christianity has gone, it has laid the foundation for the enhancement of the dignity of woman. We haven't always done well. First to own that up in terms of the church's failure. What I think many feminists see when they come to the Bible is the static texts. They fail to see that there is a redemptive movement that God has intended. It's true for slavery, it's true for violence, it's true for some other issues as well. Obviously more needs to be said than this. Perhaps, however, this might give us some clear ground to stand on when feminists come to you and say the Bible is full of uh, you know, misogynistic, uh, patriarchal nonsense. I reject the Bible. Well, the problem is that they haven't seen what came into the culture, how progressive it was, and how God intended to move it forward. And you don't have to be bullied you don't have to sort of back off and say, oh, you know, maybe, you know, 
I don't understand those passages, and, and I'm sure God really didn't mean that. Listen, you, you can actually have some really good conversations as you come to grips with this idea that God's word comes into a community, into a culture, takes it where it is, acknowledges where it is, assumes where it is, but doesn't advocate where it is. You know what, in 100, 200, maybe 300 years' time, should the Lord tarry, there will be people who look back on our behavior with horror. Perhaps in terms of the economic elements of our lives, how individualistic, how um, selfish, how all kinds of things. They will look back on us in horror. But God is moving something. To us, he's saying, listen, learn to be generous, for example, with your resources. He may take that even further in the years to come. Who might know? But let's not take the static texts and be, uh, be dismissive of either the scriptures or God because of static texts that God never intended to be read like that. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.